I've heard it said that one of the most important things that you have to know to understand the scripture is you have to pay attention to the context. Every passage has a a historical context, and every passage has a grammatical context, and every passage has a literary context, and you want to pay attention to that. Who wrote it? When did they write it? What were the circumstances of this writing? Who's the original audience that received this, and how would they have received it? But it's easy to overlook another context, and I always want to r- remind you of this. And today, it's, it's a heavy, heavy passage you just heard. We wouldn't want to overlook the emotional context. How would the people who originally received this writing, how would they have felt about it when they heard it? How would they have felt? Who were they? Who wrote this? Was John the apostle? He wrote it on the Isle of Patmos. He's writing down a vision, a series of visions that he had from the Lord. This, as you know, is the culmination of a series of visions of judgment that that the scene toggles back and forth from heaven to earth, from heaven to earth. And now something happens entirely different than anything else in this book. Heaven comes to earth. And initially... There's joy in heaven. There's this outburst of joy in heaven. But when Jesus rides to earth and read this, you realize it's not one of the happy texts of the Bible. As wonderful as it is that Jesus Christ appears as he promised, and he's about to do things most wonderful. At first, though, he comes in judgment. Now, how would the original, who was the original audience? So, So John, the beloved apostle, a a, a disciple of Jesus, uh, an affectional disciple of Jesus, is persecuted, he's boiled in oil, he's exiled to the Isle of Patmos. He has these visions from God. He's told to write them down. They're given to angels or messengers to take to the churches, and all scattered throughout uh, Asia Minor are these small clusters of Jesus gatherings. These are people who are under persecution, These are people who the threat of persecution hangs over them at the very least. They're a tiny minority group of believers in Jesus. And they're oppressed and they they believe they'll be even more and will be even more oppressed. Even John was oppressed. And then you have this chapter 19, verses 11 through 21, which are the description. uh, Anybody in that culture would have recognized this as a description of something like a Roman triumph. Paul talked about a Roman triumph in 1 Corinthians, in a beautiful passage in 1 Corinthians, Paul describes what it was like for him to follow Jesus. He said, Jesus conquered me. He captured me. He chained me to his chariot and he drug me through the streets. And now Paul says, I just go around a captive of Jesus wherever I go, following in his train, in his train of victory. This is uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Paul's complaining a little bit about not finding Titus. He was looking forward to finding Titus, and Titus wasn't there when he came to Troas. But he said, but thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Through us he spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance of death to death. The other, the fragrance of life to life. Paul was referring to what would happen if a Roman conqueror 
did a certain thing, it would have to be quite a, a conquering. And it would have to fulfill a, a series of very, very high requirements. He would then receive what was called a triumph. It would be a huge parade. He would be God for a day. And he would have his captors behind him and the booty that he captured with him. And they would strew flowers before him. And there would be the, the, the horses and the feet of the people would trample on these flowers. There would be a fragrance. There would be an aroma that would rise up. Some of those captives would be going to the Mamertine prison. Some would be going to their death, to the arena. And so for those that were marching in victory, that fragrance of the flower petals being mashed down would be a fragrance of life, a fragrance of victory. But for those who were on their way to death, that fragrance would be the stench of death. It would remind them that they were on their way to die. Paul said, I'm like a prisoner behind Jesus. He's taking me wherever he goes in triumph, and I belong to him, but I'm on my way to life. Now, this is also the image that John uses when he wants to describe the return of Christ in power and great glory. And how would the original audience have felt about that? I discovered this week something fascinating. The only way that we know what a menorah looks like, you know, the seven-pronged candlestick of the Jewish people the, and, and, and accoutrement of the temple, the only reason that we historically know what that looks like is because there was a Roman triumph when, when Titus captured Jerusalem. Titus and the Roman hordes captured Jerusalem in AD 70. About as long before, about as long before the fall of Jerusalem was about as long before the completion of the revelation as we would remember the towers falling. It was about a 20-year period of time. It was very fresh in their collective memory. This fall of Jerusalem was horrific fall of Jerusalem. And all the bloodshed and all the heartache and the terrible, the Josephus describes it in a most horrifying way. And Titus comes back to Rome for a triumph, and he marches in triumph, but his younger brother is Domitian. Domitian who is persecuting the church. And Domitian says, I don't want my brother to be remembered as God for a day. I want my brother to be remembered for all time for what he did. And so he built a famous arch, the Arch of Titus in Rome. It still stands in Rome today. And on the Arch of Titus is a bas-relief which they'd often do to capture in people's minds what happened, a picture of a menorah being taken away from the temple in Jerusalem. And devout Jews would not ever go under that arch. They would never refer to it in their literature. How would the people, 20 years later, receiving this letter and realizing that Jesus is saying, when I come back, I'm going to be coming in a triumph of all triumphs. This is what we read when we read of this great triumph when I saw heaven open and a white horse. The one sitting was called faithful and, and true. This is the emotional context. Let's walk through this text. In verse 11, heaven is open and behold, they say, never underread the word behold in the Bible. It's a shock. Look, Jesus is coming. He's appearing on a white horse. The scriptures promised that he would appear. And then we return in like manner as you see him go into heaven. That's Acts chapter 1 and verse 11. Jesus went away literally and physically ascending into the clouds. He says, I'm going to come back in the same way. So Jesus promised his disciples and his disciples repeated it early in Acts. Jesus, as his ascension says, I'm coming back the way you see me going. I'm going in the cloud. I'm coming back in the cloud. And this is that 
fulfillment of that promise in Revelation and chapter 1. This whole passage is set up in chapter 1 and verse 7 by this statement. Behold, he's coming with clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. That was the promise in Revelation 1-7. Now we see the fulfillment of it in Revelation 19. He's called faithful and true. His judgment is faithful. His words are true. In verse 12, he has eyes like a flame of fire. It's symbolic of his omniscience. He has many crowns. These are not Stefano's crowns, the runner's crown. They're diadem crowns, the, the king's crown. He has many crowns. He is the king of kings and Lord of lords, but I'm getting ahead of myself. He has a name unknown to anyone but himself. Don't ask me what that name is. I don't know. And he is his name. There, uh, his eyes are like a flame of fire. This is 12. On his head are many diadems. He has a name written no one knows but himself. We'll never plumb the depths of the mysteries of God. Even throughout eternity, we'll still be learning. Verse 13, he's clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And this is a reminder that the, the, the victory that Jesus won, he doesn't win here when he comes to earth and out of his mouth comes a sharp sword that conquers the nations. He, his victory he won on Calvary. Jesus stumbled to Calvary and couldn't carry his own cross. He, he, was, he, he lived in human weakness, in divine power, but in human weakness. And he stumbled to the cross and had to have someone else serve him by carrying his cross. But when Jesus walked away from the cross, he walked away as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It was on the cross where Jesus won this great victory. And he just, it's just, he's just a time delay in terms of him bringing heaven to earth as saints have prayed. So the robe is dipped in blood and the lamb that's slain is riding to earth and he's called the word of God. John 1, Revelation 19. In verse 14, this is amazing now. So he appears from heaven when he comes, Jesus is going to appear at the end of the tribulation. He's going to appear in heaven. And then he's not, not going to be alone. The armies of heaven, and no, notice this, the armies of heaven are arrayed in fine linen. That should remind you of something that you've already read. Who is it that's arrayed in fine linen, that's dressed in white, white and pure? They're following him on white horses. I had a girl I wanted to be my girlfriend. I, I was going to call her my girlfriend, but she really never was my girlfriend. But I, I wanted her to be my girlfriend, and she had horses. And so we went to her farm to ride horses, and I wanted to impress her about how manly I was. And, but I didn't know anything about horses. Super dangerous. I had tennis shoes on. Not a good idea. I, I remember my grandpa telling me, you know, to ride a horse, you got to get on one more time, then he throws you off. That was not really very good advice. Um, so the horse, the motorcycle went by and the horse reared back and I thought, I'm not going to fall off this horse. I'll just yank back on the bride. I just yanked back as hard as I could. I just kept yanking back thinking he's eventually going to submit to me. Don't ever do that. Horses will actually go over backwards on top of you if you do that. And horses are heavy. It was probably just the grace and providence of God that I slipped off to the side and the horse landed really hard on the ground. And then I thought, well, I got to get back on really quick. So I grabbed him and I went to get back on. And he stutter stepped around and stood on my foot. Remember what I told you about my tennis shoes? I, that's why people wear cowboy boots. Um, I, I discovered it was very clumsy. Um, 
when I read this, I thought, well, my goodness, can you imagine coming out of heaven with Jesus to earth, riding a horse, and none of us will be clumsy. And we won't have to do anything. He's got it in hand. I believe the saints are with the Lord. Some who believe, like in a post-trib rapture, they believe there's sort of a going out and coming back. Those who believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, they, they, see, they say that, you know, the, the church, is, and the distinction between the church and Israel is very sharp and that when the 70th week of Daniel begins, the church gets mysteriously raptured to heaven, like 1 Corinthians 7 says, behold, I show you a mystery. They say that the, that the rapture passages are always couched in joy and relief, and that the second coming passages in power and great glory are always described as judgment. However, we're coming back. We're coming back with Jesus. The saints that are dressed in the robes of white, are, they have their rewards. They're coming back to, to stand, getting ahead of myself, this is next week, but he's going to come and establish his 1,000-year reign that he promised and join heaven and earth, but that's not this week. Is, so he comes with the armies of heaven. This is an unusual army. When I was a boy, I told my sister, I remember where we were, we were up in Grand Rapids, and I, I grabbed a little rifle that I had, and I threw it over my shoulder, and I said, I'm in the Salvation Army. I remember my sister going, you're such an idiot. <laughs> you're such an idiot. You don't know anything. They don't carry guns in a Salvation Army. I'm like, what kind of army is that? That's ridiculous. It's like, this is the ultimate Salvation Army. And, and Jesus has a sword in his mouth. I believe it's symbolic. But what's happening is literal. He's going to take over everything. Absolutely Everything. And he's going to reign. He's going to rule. He's almighty. And he, the, the scriptures say, as promised in Revelation 1-7, he's going to strike the nations. These are the nations that have been warned and warned and warned in dramatic and miraculous ways. He's going to rule with a rod of iron. He's going to tread the winepress of the fury and the wrath of God. People that tell you, oh, the Old Testament God is wrathful and the New Testament God isn't wrathful, just haven't read their Bible very carefully. R wrath is a part of God's character. There are things that ought to make good people angry. There are things that just, if, you're not, if they don't anger you, you're not a good person. I'm not going to give you any detail. You, you can think there are just certain atrocities that are so vile that if they don't anger you, it's, it shows a lack of character on your part. And how do we know what is vile and abominable and bad? We ask God. He's the one that's the judge of that. He comes back to earth and said, these nations that have rebelled against me, that have rejected me, the nations that have rejected me are, are going to receive my wrath. And then notice in verse 16, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I was telling you about Messiah, the oratorio, and the famous ha uh, Handel's Messiah, and the famous Hallelujah Chorus. And you know, it was King George who at the, at the, when the oratorio arrived at this majestic Hallelujah Chorus, he stood to his feet. You, you remember the story is told. And, and they say when the king stands, no one else is allowed to remain seated. And so when the king stood, everybody stood. And whether that happened precisely like that or not, we don't know. But we do know this. Wherever Handel's Messiah is sung, when you get to the Hallelujah Chorus, 
everybody stands on their feet. And then over and over, we sing, King of kings and Lord of lords. The someday every king and every prince and every ruler, every president, every congressman, every senator, every dog catcher, it's going to be on his face before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. This should orient your life. He, in the end, is going to be known by everyone as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And then his judgment is going to sweep in. Before we move on, let me, let me point out some comparisons that are interesting. You have a bride, the bride of Christ, the church. You have the false religious system, which is called a harlot. You have the people that are blessed over and over again. They're blessed. And over and over again, the people that are cursed. You have the blessed that are small and great. You have the cursed that are small and great. You have the marriage supper of the Lamb. In the first part of this chapter, you have the great supper of God where the birds are literally eating the flesh of those who fell in God's judgment. In the second part, you have the smoke of incense of the prayers of God's saints that goes up before God and is cherished by God. And now you have the smoke of torment. In verse 18, the flesh of kings. The ca so you see, you see what happened? There's a section here. Jesus is coming back. There's another section. The saints are coming with him. There's another section. And those who rejected him are going to be judged. And then this is the most momentous section. This last section is, and those who rebelled against him are going to be crushed. And that starts there in verse 18. By the way, 17 says, the angel is standing in the sun and a loud voice is calling to the birds to, to eat the flesh and the great supper of God. The flesh of kings, verse 18, and the captains and mighty men and horses and riders and all free men and the slaves and the small and the great. People say, well, I'm too great for this judgment. No, no, you're not. People say, I, I wasn't a part of this. I'm just a common man. You don't escape Verse 19, the beast and the kings and the armies are gathered in rebellion. The beast, remember the beast that we were interested to, intro, in, introduced to before and the false prophet, the two of the tri, of the, the demonic trinity, the red dragon is going to be dealt with in the next chapter. All three are going to be cast, the Bible says, into the lake of fire a thousand years later. The devil comes back out of the lake of fire. And people say that believe in annihilation haven't reckoned with this. That believe you, people will just be, the Bible teaches eternal conscious torment of those who reject Jesus. It's just what the scriptures teach. You've got to twist on the Bible to say something different. And if that's not true, like you have the devil going to hell for a thousand years. He's still, still conscious after a thousand years. But again, I'm getting ahead of myself. This is not a fun text. I, I was studying it this week and thinking, finally, I've gotten to the return of Christ. How wonderful. And then I, as I studied it deeply, I realized this is horrific. This is sad. It's, it's wonderful and sad. Of course, it's wonderful that Jesus returns. But think about the people that you love. Think about the people that you care about that don't know the Lord. How should God's people, what, what would be our emotional context here? Thank you, God for your vindication, but oh God, help me win people to Christ. Help me live for you. There's, and then verse 20, the beast, the false prophet who worshiped her throne in the lake of fire. And verse 21, slain by the sword and the birds, birds gorged their flesh. Let's go back over that again in a little different way. I'm gonna tell you four things. One, Christ will appear, verses 11 through 13. This is his second advent or appearance. 
Christ will appear. Think of it. Think of nothing else but that. Think for just a minute. I was back in my study. Normally, I take Friday for a big study day and, and then Saturday for what's left over. And, but I got a little ahead. And Thursday, I was able to study in the afternoon. And I felt like I met with the Lord back there. Doesn't happen like that all the time. I just felt like just right there, Jesus Christ is going to appear. He has never appeared to me before. Has he appeared to you? Have you physically seen Jesus before? I have not. All my life, I've worshiped one who I haven't seen. My mama taught me about this wonderful man who I never have seen yet. I've sung every Sunday of my life about this wonderful man this God man who I've never seen, but we're going to see him. There he is. Jesus appearing. How power. Behold, Jesus is going to appear in glory and power. King of kings, Lord of lords, word of God. Our faith will be sight. Every doubt will be blown away. Are you reading the same Bible I'm reading? That's like, whew. And now he doesn't appear, but second, he appears with heaven's armies, and we're among them. Imagine. He appears with armies. Imagine a million, appearing with millions. Will it will be televised around the world? Will, it, will Jesus circle the earth so every person will see him? Every eye will see him. The Bible says every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him. And the nations, the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Ah, oh, the, the mourning and the grief of those who have resisted him. And he'll appear to all, the scriptures literally say. And by the way, if you're thinking, well, this must be some sort of non-literal thing, the only problem with that is you have so many passages in the Scripture. We're preaching Revelation, so I'm resisting the urge to go to Daniel and Zechariah and Ezekiel and other places in the New Testament. There are, there are literally hundreds of places we could go. You cannot say, I believe the Bible, but I don't believe in a literal, physical return of Jesus. You just can't say that. Because if you don't believe in a literal, physical return of Jesus, you don't believe the, this, the message of the Bible. They go together. You can't reject that. Because it's like the, I kind of call it the Mr. Potato Head Jesus, the one that the culture makes up and they just plug in whatever they want and they leave out whatever they want. This isn't what, how you treat the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. This isn't a God who saves this is another idol, and it's even more blasphemous because you attach the holy name of Jesus to that idol. Jesus will appear. We'll see him as he is, and he'll appear with armies. Third, he'll appear with armies and in absolute authority, absolute authority, king of kings, lord of lords, no one is greater. Can I just appeal to you to think this one who has eyes like a flame of fire, he knows everything, nothing escapes him, will appear one day, and he will judge the earth in righteousness. No one will be able to talk back to him and say, well, that's not fair, or I appeal. There'll be no appeal. There'll be, there, won't, there won't be an appropriate appeal. He'll come with absolute authority, and there is no court of appeal. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords, and he is faithful and true. He is the word of God. This is our Jesus. He will appear. He'll appear with armies. And he'll, number three, he'll appear in absolute authority. And number four, he'll appear with armies in absolute authority. And he will avenge those who oppose himself. Vengeance is not inappropriate, it be, but it belongs to God. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, he says. 
So the, th the thing that comes to, to my mind when I see this is Jesus is, a, is the conquering king. The, the conquering king is returning here. The conquering king of the universe is going to physically return. And this is why we are called, remember that Nike word, the Nike, the word we, Nike that we, that's the, that's the word that occurs over and over and over in Revelation. The, matter of fact, just, just a quick review. In, in Revelation, uh, the, to the, the letters of the churches each include a promise to those who Nike, victor, win, overcome. Sometimes it's translated victory in the Bible. Sometimes it's translated overcome in the Bible. Overcomers will eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. Overcomers will not be hurt by the second death. Overcomers, victorious, will receive some hidden manna and a white stone with a new name. And overcomers or victorious will have authority over the nations. It's a synonym for every believer, but a believer is victorious. It, he partakes, she partakes in the victory of Jesus that we're seeing demonstrated here. This powerful victory of Jesus. Overcomers will have authority over the nations as Jesus rules with a rod of iron and will receive the morning star. And overcomers will be clothed in white garments and their names will not be removed from the book of life. And Jesus will confess their names before the Father and before his angels. I'm reading the overcomer parts from the letters to the churches. The overcomers will be pillars in the temple of God. The overcomers will have God's name and the name of God's city and Jesus' new name on them. And the overcomers will sit down with Jesus on his throne. This is a group you want to be in. You want to be in the victory. Fold me into the victory of Jesus. Jesus is coming in victory. I want to be on his team. That's as plainly as I can put it. I want to get as many people on that team as I possibly can by God's grace and invite others to that. Now listen to what it says. Here, here are some three, I'll give you three examples of the many in Scripture. I'm going to read to you now from Romans 8. And there's a word that's in here. Um, we are more, remember the we are, I'm going to read, we are more than conquerors. Remember that part? We are more, even though we're accounted as sheep for the slaughter, we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. So even while we're being lined up for the slaughter, even if they kill us, Paul says, we're going to be, and the, and the word in the Greek, it looks like hypernike. I'm, I'm totally butchering the Greek pronunciation, but that's what it looks like. It looks like hypernike. Get it? Like over, over, like super conquerors. Paul would make up stuff when he preached. So we're like going to be super conquerors, even though we're lined up and they're going to slit our throat. But even if they slit our throat, we're super conquerors. We're, we have been swept into the victory of Jesus. This is a theme of the Bible. This should fire you up today. This should get you just a little bit excited. Nothing can defeat a person who's been swept into the victory of Jesus. I know you struggle with temptation, but you won't always struggle with temptation because Jesus is going to conquer all temptations someday. I know that you feel like you're getting older. I mean, I can tell by looking at you, you're getting older. There are things I'm never going to be able to do that I always wanted to do until I get my new body and I get to come to the new earth. Then I'm going to hike at the Appalachian Trail. Anybody want to go with me? That'll be fun. I'm going to do the Appalachian Trail, but I'm going to need a new body. I have a serious consciousness that I sometimes fall to temptation and sometimes my knees are bad and I can't do the things that I hoped I would be able to do. Then I wonder and I worry about the future. But I'm following the one who comes in a victory train and he sucked me into his own victory and I am more than conquerors. This is the way Paul said it. What shall we say to these things? 
If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge to God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that. He's raised and he's at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long and we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we are super Nikkei. We are hyper Nike. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death or life, nor things to come, nor things present, nor thing, uh, neither death or life, or angels or rulers, or things present, or things to come, or powers, or height, or depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you are in Christ Jesus, you are on the winning side. You are a hyper conqueror. You, are a, you win because G Jesus will pull you into his victory. How sweet is that? I wouldn't miss that for everything in the world. Ed Creech is my friend. We, we went to his house the other day. Ed and Sunday got saved in the church I pastored before I came here. They came to my study, and week after week we would talk, and they just, you could see them cross over the line into followers of Jesus. And, and, and in, 19, in, chapter, in, 20, in 2016 in that church, I preached through Revelation. So Ed and Sunday here, this is their second time through under me. I was over at his house for dinner, and I said, Ed, what is it like? Like, do I repeat myself a lot? What is it like to hear this, the, the, me preach through Revelation the second time? And, and I, as I recall, he said he liked it. But here, here's the thing that I remember in particular. He said, when are you going to tell the story about Jesus wins? You didn't tell the Jesus wins story. I said, I think I did. You know, I, I don't think you did. I go, Why? Well, here, here, you want me to tell you the story? Okay, then I will. Um, it, I got this story from a guy named Joe Stoll. Joe Stoll was the president of Moody for almost 20 years, president of Cornerstone, just retired this month. And this amazing Bible teacher. And online, I was watching a teaching online that he did for Day of Discovery when he explained what I'm going to tell you. And I, I actually put a clip of that on my website, so please don't look right now. But after you get home from church, you can watch Joe Stoll tell this story right but I'll tell you my version of it. Joe Stoll was leading a group in, in Asia Minor, and he went to the Isle of Patmos. And, and, and one of the ladies there went to a gift shop, and she was looking at a medallion. And medallion had these unusual markings. It was a cross that said I-C-X-E-N-I-K-A. You ever seen this? It's in Eastern Christianity. I-C-X-E and then N-I-K-A. And there's a cross. And she said, what do these letters mean? And he said that it means Jesus is the conqueror. It's the letters for Jesus Christ conqueror, Nika, Nike. She said, oh, does that mean like Jesus wins? He said, that's right. That's what that means. Joe Stoll was teaching the people. The whole book of Revelation is a little bit difficult to understand. But never forget this. The, the big idea of the book of Revelation is this. Jesus wins. Jesus wins. Ed told me, he said, as a young Christian, he began to pray for things. Pray for God to provide for him, help him in his work and such. He said every time he get an answer to prayer, he would say, 
Jesus wins. He would tell his wife when she got home, Jesus wins. This is what I want for you. I want you to be swept into the victory of Jesus. Your temptations to be swept into the victory of Jesus. Your fears to be swept into the victory of Jesus. Jesus wins. And if you're with him, you win. Listen, this is what, this is what it says. In, in, uh, I'll tell you, brothers. This is in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul wrote this. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. By the way, this is one of the reasons why some who believe that the rapture is before the tribulation, and why is it not explicit? Because it's not. It's certainly not explicit in Revelation. Why would the rapture be, if it's true, why is it not explicit? And the answer might be, because it was a mystery that God reveals, and a mystery is something that's true, but God reveals it later. But nonetheless, this is what he says, behold, I tell you, a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. The trumpet will sound, and then the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. In other words, like Jesus, we'll get a resurrected body. It will be, it will be recognizable as us, but it will be a resurrected body. The perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in Nike. That's the word. Death is swallowed up in overcoming victory. Death is swallowed up in victory. Did you hear that? Death is swallowed up in victory. This is amazing. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. You know that your labor is not in vain in the, in the Lord. And that is why we follow Jesus. And that is why we invite other people to follow Jesus. We are inviting them into the influence of his victory. Every believer should be a person who has the victory of Jesus in her heart, in his heart. Every little cluster of Christians is an outpost of the victory of Jesus. Every church is a franchise of Jesus' victory. Everywhere two Christians get together at work and they pray together, they're claiming the victory of Jesus. Everywhere a man and a woman marry and God blesses them with children and maybe someday with grandchildren, there is a, there's an opportunity to spread the victory of Jesus through that family. And one day we will be glad we did because the heaven will burst open and Jesus will appear. Amen? Amen. Amen. Father, bless these who have gathered in your name today with the spirit of the conquering Jesus, the Savior. And oh God, help us to turn your enemies into your friends through the gospel. Help us, I pray, to win our neighbors and friends. Help us, I pray, to spread the victory of Jesus wherever we go. In Christ's name. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.